Well, today we begin a new series of sermons on the book of Ruth. And I'd like to read the first chapter this morning, so if you'd like to follow with me, you'll find it on page 222 in your pew Bible, uh, Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malan and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake, and the hand of the Lord, or that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be your people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and much more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. And so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? 
And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Lord has brought calamity upon me? And so Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. They came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. The story of Ruth is a story within the story. It is a glimpse of what a sovereign and good God is doing to accomplish his mission. Now, God is at work in his people despite the sinful choices that we make. But in fact, he does work not only in us, but also through us. The story of Ruth is not a big story. It's small. The characters are not amazing. In fact, they're rather ordinary. It is a story about one small family and one young non-Israelite widow, Ruth. Ruth serves as a light of hope in the darkness of the times of the judges. You know, this story uh, takes place during the same time period as the time of the Judges. You know, some people, after they've read Judges, um, see things they've never really seen in, in Scripture before and come away kind of disillusioned a bit. And why is this in the Bible? You know, where's the good news? Where's the gospel here? And actually, the gospel's all the way through book of Judges, which says there is no redeemer. I mean, there is no king, and the redeemer is the king. We need a redeemer. The book of Ruth is a sequel to the book of Judges. It picks up where Judges leaves off. As Judges says, we need a redeemer. Ruth says there is a redeemer. And the story of Ruth points to the ultimate redeemer who is to come. Of course, there will be a line of kings beginning with Saul and then following up with David who is the greatest king, but one greater than David will come and sit on David's throne and he will reign forever and forever. The story of Ruth is a story within the story that there is a redeemer. The redeemer is coming. His name is Jesus Christ. And he comes in the midst of a hopeless and a hapless situation. But we are reminded that regardless of how difficult times may be, God is faithful. The book of Ruth uh, reminds us that God not only works visibly through prophets and miracles, but that he is invisibly and mysteriously working all the time, even through tragedy. It is a story for those of us who are well acquainted with tragedy or loss or pain. It is a story for everyone who wonders where God is in the midst of heartbreak after heartbreak. It is a story for those who will doubt whether God is in control or whether God is good or whether faithfulness to do what is right is worth it. 
in hard times. It is a story for people who question whether all things, including suffering, do in fact work together for good to those who love God, to those called according to his purpose. The setting for the story of Ruth, again, is in the time of the judges. And uh, they just seem to be totally different from each other. And yet both narratives take place at, at the same time period, but from two different perspectives. The uh, message of Judges, again, is, uh, there was no king in Israel in those days. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes, meaning that there was no objective standard of morality uh, that was regarded um, as the, the, the moral compass or as, as the guide. You just do whatever you think is right. You establish your own morality. And we see what a society looks like that does that. We live in such a society today, uh, do, do we not? So uh, you know, Judges uh, you know, deals with, with that sort of thing. If, uh, if, if someone were to make um, Judges and Ruth, you know, Judges would be the, 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 the first uh, movie and uh, Ruth would be the sequel. But the, the, the story of, of Judges, I mean, this would really appeal to guys. Uh, look, look at all that's in this book. There's lots of action, uh, there's uh, uh, war, uh, there is tension, there's even a femme fatale or two, and uh, just a lot of strange plot twists and uh, really strange and, and amazing characters. Uh, but the book of Ruth is more appealing to women because you know, you've got this element of romance and relationships and uh, tenderness and uh, all of that sort of thing, uh, a lot of mystery. Uh, and, and, and there is a lot of mystery with the, the culture and the customs of the times of, uh, of, of Israelis during the times of, of the, the judges and, and of Ruth. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, Ruth as the sequel does go further than the book of uh, Judges. The book of Judges uh, just points out there is no king, there is no redeemer. Uh, Ruth makes it clear there is a redeemer. If you were to look at the last page of Ruth, chapter 4 and verse 22, you will see a, a genealogy uh, in verses, last part of verse 21 and 22. It says, Boaz... Uh, fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Then if you would, were to go to the New Testament, first book in the New Testament, Matthew, and go to the first page and the first a few verses there, you, you skip down uh, to, to uh, verse 5, and it says, And Simon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. It's almost identical. So Ruth is pointing us, the book of Ruth is pointing us to the line through which the Redeemer is to come. So in short, the message of these two books uh, that take place at the same time frame is this. A Redeemer is needed. There is a Redeemer. The Redeemer is coming. The Redeemer is Jesus.
So the book of Ruth is ultimately all about Jesus. It's a short book. It's only four chapters, 85 verses. And yet the story powerfully communicates the message that God communicates through this book. There is a Redeemer. So there's a lot of clues that point uh, to, to the message. Um, let's start with clue number one. Now, the setting we've already discussed. It's the time of the judges. And uh, the, the scene opens. Let's look at verse one here. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Let's stop there. We've already talked about it being in the days of, of, of the judges. And now we see that a famine has come upon the land. Uh, this is the first of many uh, spiritual disasters. Uh, famine came upon the land because of the disobedience of the people. If uh, we were to look at Deuteronomy chapter 28, uh, verses 23 and following, uh, so the heavens over your head shall be bronze and the earth under you shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven, dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. Now, God said this to his people who were in the wilderness uh, not long before Moses died and they were to enter into the promised land when they crossed over the river Jordan. And uh, he tells them, he uh, pronounces the, uh, the blessings of being faithful to the covenant and uh, he also plus uh, pronounces the, 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 the curses that will come as a result of breaking the covenant. So he's saying, here's the covenant. Uh, if you will be faithful to it, uh, you're going to be blessed all over the place. Uh, if you break it, uh, then curses are going to come. And here's one of the examples. And so here's what we see happening. You know, in, in the time of the judges, you know, the people were going along, they seem to be doing okay. Uh, but then they follow after these foreign gods and they get mixed up with them. And as a result of that, a foreign oppressor would come and uh, make life miserable for them. And so the people would cry out to God for deliverance and he would send a judge. And then there would be a, a rest, you know, for a period of time. And then the cycle would start all over again. And it seems like the people uh, never really learned that there was a connection between what they believed about God and the, the, the situation, whether you want to call it a political situation because there were powers at work there uh, between rulers, or if you wanted to call it natural disasters because there were things like famine, uh, they seem to never really see that there was a connection between your relationship with God and how your life would uh, pan out. Something we need to learn here is that your theology affects more than just your mind. It has a, a, a powerful effect upon not, not only the people around you, uh, but the whole population so uh, anyway the drought was the result of a spiritual disaster it was the result of bad theology people did what was right in their own eyes they determined their own morality they didn't need God for that so the Lord gave his people 
what they had chosen. They had chosen a curse over a blessing. So God turned the land to the land of milk and honey into a dust bowl. Now we might look at this and say, oh, well, God was being real, really stern here. He was bringing judgment upon the people because of their sins and he's going to make them pay and make them feel sorry for what they did. Well, that's partially true. I mean, God did bring judgment, but judgment not strictly and, and uh, solely to punish, but also to bring about repentance. If you were miserable long enough, you might start to call out to God. And that is why God would bring judgment of various sorts. So uh, let's follow the, the narrative, pick it up again here in verse 2. Uh, the name of the man was Elimelech. Uh, the name of his wife is Naomi. The names of the two sons were Malon and Chilion. Uh, so... Here are the cast of characters uh, that are mentioned uh, in the um, next verse here. We learn that Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and uh, she is left with her two sons. Uh, let's pause here just for a moment and kind of pick up some of the clues that uh, point us to the, the, the central message which we will uh, emphasize in, in just a little bit. But you, you've got uh, the cast of characters, uh, Elimelech, uh, whose name means uh, God is my king. And then you have Naomi, whose name means pleasant, and Malon and Chilion. I have no idea what their names mean, uh, but uh, scripture doesn't tell us. Nevertheless, uh, they were curious names to us. Uh, but they lived in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is a clue. Uh, Bethlehem means house of bread. Isn't that ironic? Uh, they live in a place called the house of bread when there is no bread. There's a famine that's going on. By the way, speaking of Bethlehem, I mean, is that a clue that points you to anything significant? That anything important ever happened in Bethlehem? Were any famous babies born in Bethlehem? Yeah, well, you think of two, you know, David uh, was born there, and then one who is greater than David, who would sit on David's throne, uh, who would be called the son of David, you know, Jesus is born in Bethlehem. These things just jump right out at you when you, 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 you see Bethlehem, you start thinking, who do you start thinking of? You start thinking of Jesus. That's the purpose of Ruth. All right, so they, they uh, decide that uh, you know, there's no food here, here, here in the house of, uh, of bread. Let's, uh, let's go to Moab. Let's see if I can get us to Moab. Here we go. So, uh, anyway, they're in Moab, and Malan and Chilion take Moabite wives. One is named Orpah. The other is named Ruth. Let's talk about Moab for just a couple of minutes. Anything about Moab that we need to know that would give us a clue about what's going on here? Well, who are the Moabites? The Moabites were the descendants of Lot. Lot was Abraham's nephew. And uh, you may remember, you know, last week we talked a little bit about uh, Lot in Genesis 19, where some uh, angels had come to announce that judgment is coming upon Sodom and Gomorrah, which is where you know, Lot was living at the time in Sodom. And uh, they were going to 
guide Lot and his family out of that situation. And uh, in the meantime, you had some of the Moabites who were coming who wanted to have relations with the angels. And the angels struck all of the uh, Moabite men there blind so that they didn't know what they were doing. So these are the Moabites. Where do the Moabites come from? Well, we know that they were descendants of Lot, but it was from an incestuous relationship that Lot had with his oldest daughter. He had incestuous relationships with his younger daughter too, but the, uh, the, the son who came from that incestuous relationship, well, see, the, the, the whole area had been destroyed and the daughters thought, you know, if, if uh, we don't have children, um, we're going to die out. And so they got their father drunk and have relations with him. And um, I mean, the Bible doesn't blush about all the things that went on. But these are, are the descendants of uh, uh, Lot's oldest daughter, Moab, uh, the descendants of the younger daughters. Um, the, those descendants uh, were from the son uh, Ammon. So Moabites from the, the first daughter and the Ammonites from the second daughter. And the people of Israel were forbidden to marry among these people, not because it had anything to do with their nationality or their race or anything like that. It had everything to do with what gods they served. The Moabites and the Ammonites served strange gods, uh, child sacrifice, uh, terrible, terrible things. And uh, God did not want his people getting mixed up in that. So, all right, let's move on. We know anything else about Moab, uh, Moab or the Moabites? Well, we know that they were the perennial enemy of Israel uh, in addition to worshiping uh, false gods. And in Numbers 22, uh, we see where the, the king of Moab hired Balaam to curse Israel. This is when they were in, in the wilderness. And uh, by the way, if you've never uh, heard the story or read the story about Balaam, and his donkey, the, the talking donkey. Uh, it is an amazing story. Uh, sometime we need to do that. But I mean, can you imagine uh, talking to a donkey or the, the donkey talks and then, you know, Balaam talks back or having a conversation? It tells you something about Balaam. Uh, um, so I want to tell you something about you know, Moab. You know, he was hired uh, by uh, the king of Moab to, uh, to curse the, the people of Israel. But um, God didn't want his people to be cursed, so he turned the curse into a blessing. And here we see a, another messianic thread. When God takes a curse that's intended for his people and turns it into a blessing, uh, can't you see the, the messianic strain there? You see what it's pointing to? On the cross... Jesus became a curse for us. The worst thing that could possibly happen in the history of the world was the rejection and the execution of Jesus on the cross. But it was not in spite of this cross that God brought blessing. It was through the cross. These things are foundational to how we live our lives. We go through hard times sometimes. Uh, you know, we, we are living in a challenging time, uh, even now with 
COVID causing all kinds of inconveniences, and in some cases, it's more than inconvenience, it's a matter of life or death. And there are lots of people who are going through this, and there are, are things besides that that uh, people go through. There are hard times that come, but when we remember that God is at work, not only in spite of the hard times, but he is at work through the hard times, uh, we see what an amazing God we really have. Well, the point is here is that Elimelech is seriously coloring outside the lines. He's not supposed to be in Moab. He is hungry, he and his family, um, they're hungry, but instead of going to God, he takes matters into his own hands. You see, they live in a, a, a time where everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You, you, God just doesn't, he's not part of the equation anymore. So they, 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 uh, they hightail it down to, to Moab. And uh, speaking of Moab, in uh, Judges 3, remember that story where, uh, you know, there's Eglon, who was king of Moab, and he ruled over Israel for 18 years until this left-handed guy named Ehud, or Ehud, uh, comes and he uh, tricks uh, Eglon into thinking that he is coming to bring him tribute, and instead he thrusts his sword into him, and Eglon is so fat that the sword of Ehud just kind of, uh, you know, sinks into his belly and you know, it's a really disgusting story, and we already talked about that, but you see how things are, 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 are connected. Uh, so here's where we are. Um, a, a man, Elimelech, uh, whose name means God is king, takes his family to Moab, and he stays there 10 years. That, that's significant. He, he didn't just go down there to, you know, get some supplies and uh, bring them back. They decided, yeah, let's just... Let's just camp out here for a while, 10 years. So it sure looks like Elimelech is not running to God. He's running away from him. Then in uh, verse, uh, the previous verse, we see that um, Elimelech dies. Um, and Naomi is left with her two sons. This is a disaster. It's a terrible disaster. But at least she still had her two sons. And then... In uh, verse 4, uh, we, we get a, a clue about the sons that they took uh, Moabite wives. So the name of the first was Orpah. I know I'm going to somewhere before the sermon is over say Oprah, uh, but it's not Oprah, it's Orpah. And if I slip up, just know that in advance I am warning you that I may slip up, but please remember that the woman's name is Orpah. And so anyway, these were the wives. Then in uh, verse 5, disaster strikes again. Both Malon and Chilion died. So the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. And I can't think of anything more tragic than losing your husband and your sons. The grief and the loneliness of being far away from home would have been hard to deal with. But I'm not sure we can really understand Naomi's situation, just how destitute she was. See, in, in those days, there was no life insurance. Uh, there was no 
husband's pension that you could rely upon. I mean, not even Social Security. So what do you think is going on inside Naomi's mind? Where is God in all of this? Why is this happening to me? What do I have left? What will I do? And then we're provided with another clue. In uh, verses 6 and following, she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Now she's ready to go back home. She's heard that there is food there in Bethlehem, the house of bread. So she decides to go back, and her daughters-in-law think, well, this is a good thing. They'll go back too. Um, I want to point out this key word here, uh, the, the word in the second to last line on the screen where the Lord visited his people. When we think of visit, we think, oh, you know, a friend or a family member might just drop by and say, hey, how you doing? By the way, you got anything to eat? I'd love to sit and chat with you for a while. Uh, but when, when God comes to visit his people, uh, he doesn't come by for a casual visit just to say hello. Uh, when God visits his people, he brings blessing. And I'm not talking about just a, a, a little blessing, you know, like maybe a pizza or a bucket of chicken or something. Uh, we're, we're talking about substantial blessing. In the Bible where you see that God visited someone, like when he visited Sarah, you know, she has a, a baby. He visits Hannah, and, uh, you know, she has the baby uh, Samuel. And uh, you see where God visited Solomon and said, ask whatever you want. What kind of a visit would that be? You know, God says, whatever you want, just, just ask and I'll give it to you. So we're talking about a substantial blessing here. The Lord had visited his people and given them food. Now, Naomi wanted to get in on that blessing. And it's here that we see Naomi coming to a turning point. And this is what I want us all to see, all this information, this, this background that we've been talking about so far is to bring us to this turning point. Uh, that is that there is something that's going to happen that's going to change the course of the lives of a lot of people. So in verse 7, she sat out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. This word return can also be translated repent just depends upon the context. It wouldn't make any sense. Uh, they went on their way to repent to the land of Judah. That makes no sense. But uh, return and repent really have the same basic meaning. It means you turn around, you go a different way. And so uh, not only is Naomi, you know, returning from Moab uh, back to Judah, uh, there's something else that's going on inside Naomi. Uh, Let's look at the next verse. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. And the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. Why are Orpah and Ruth going to Bethlehem with their mother-in-law? 
They are young Moabite women, probably in their early, maybe mid-twenties. Where are they most likely to find a husband among their own people who share their customs, their way of living, or to go to the land of the Jews and uh, in a small town called Bethlehem and find somebody there? So what uh, Naomi is wanted to say is, um, look, you know, we, we, we have this relationship, but you know, all of our husbands are gone. Um, if, if I'm going to have a life, I'm, I need to go back to my home. If you want to have a life, you need to go back to your home. That's what she's saying. But there's something that is pulling Orpah and Ruth to go with Naomi. What is it? Is it, is it loyalty or... Is it love or duty or maybe obligation? Now, here's something to think about. Are they going to Bethlehem with Naomi only because they are loyal to to her? Or is there something beyond Naomi that compels them to follow after her? While they're on the way to Bethlehem, Naomi stops. She urges her daughters-in-law to rethink what they're doing and... and, uh, Essentially, Naomi is saying this. You know, I appreciate your loyalty to me. Uh, You need to go back to uh, your own homes. And uh, you got a lot better chance of having a life there than if you were were to come with me. After all, I am your mother-in-law, but I don't have any more sons. I don't have a husband. And if I were to get a husband, even tonight... And if I were to be with child, even tonight, are you going to hang around and wait for that child, supposing he is a son, or maybe twins? <laughs> are you going to hang around and wait for them to grow up and marry them? I don't think so. So, go home. Now, does Naomi really want her daughters-in-law to go home? Think about it. Who does she have? Her husband's dead. Her sons or her daughters-in-law are, are with her, but, but her sons are, are dead. She doesn't have anybody. It's the only family she's got. These are the, these are the only people that she has. And, 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 and they love her. They're loyal, loyal to her. So why is she encouraging them to go back home? Maybe she's not really urging them to go back home. Maybe she's doing something else. In Bible terms, this would be called counting the cost. Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. In Joshua 24, this is the occasion uh, just before the people of Israel come into the promised land. He says, choose you this day whom you will worship, whom you will serve. And uh, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people respond, we will serve the Lord. And uh, does, does Joshua say, hey, all right, that's what I wanted to hear. 
What he says instead is, you can't do it. You can't serve the Lord. Uh, you're going to mess it up. You know, you're going to turn around and uh, you know, follow some other God. And they say, no, 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 no. We, we, we're serious about this thing. And Joshua says, all right then. And so what Naomi is doing really is she wants to know where the hearts of her daughters-in-law lie. Is there something beyond the physical town of Bethlehem that they are returning to? Well, let's explore and see what's really going on here. Naomi is saying, I have nothing. I have nothing left. Are you sure you want to come with me? And want us to recognize that this is a turning point. It's a turning point for Orpah and for Ruth. Which way are they going to go? And Naomi is saying, you're going to have to make a choice. Uh, we're, we're at a crossroads in life here. Um, make your choice. But please, 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 please realize the cost of your choice. Isn't that what the invitation to discipleship is? Now, it is our mission here. We, we want to make disciples. We want to call people to follow Jesus. We want to get the good news, the, the gospel, to, to people and our families and our friends and uh, our fellow workers and students and so forth. We, we, we want that. But not apart from each one considering the cost of what it means to follow Christ. We don't want to just sign people up who will, you know, a few months down the road decide, well, I think I'll go back to Moab, <laughs> uh, figuratively speaking. Now, we're serious about this. It's what Naomi is saying. It's what all true followers of Christ are also saying we want you to be a follower of the living God of the Redeemer but you've got to be serious about this this is what's happening here so it's a turning point maybe this is a turning point for you too now before we go to the next turning point I want to pause in the action just for a moment and consider something of profound importance and relevance uh, that uh, we alluded to just a couple of minutes ago. When you go through a crisis, what is the dominant thing that goes through your mind? Why? Why is this happening to me? Why is God allowing me to go through all of this? What's the reason? There's got to be a reason. If I just knew the reason, then I would be satisfied. No, you wouldn't. Even if you knew why God allowed you to go through hard times or to endure uh, severe pain or loss, even if he explained it to you, it wouldn't bring satisfaction. You know what does bring satisfaction? 
It is the knowledge that a sovereign God who is in control of all of heaven and earth and is also in control of your life is at work in and through your life to bring glory to himself and also to bring satisfaction to your soul. So the message here is not, here's why you're going through this crisis, or here's how to avoid a crisis in your life. It's not, here's what you need to do to quickly get out from under the consequences that come with a crisis. It's tempting to look at Naomi's situation and say, well, you know, the reason that you're going through all of this is because you left Bethlehem and went to Moab. And there is a grain of truth in that. The text tells us, Nothing, though, about what Naomi thought about the idea. It doesn't tell us that she and Elimelech sat down and said, you know, what are we going to do? And they both agreed, well, let's go to Moab. It doesn't tell us anything like that at all. Because, and, and why? Because the issue here is not to figure out why this is happening. If we focus on why, we miss out on what the text is actually saying to us, that the hand of God is at work in the midst of the worst kind of suffering. Think about the worst kind of suffering that ever went on. When the Redeemer comes and he takes on the frailty of human flesh and he is nailed to the cross and he was forsaken by God, that is absolutely the worst kind of suffering. But apart from that suffering, there would have been no redemption. It's not just in spite of the cross that God saves his people. It is through the cross. It is through the suffering of his son. Coming back to the text again, the text does not invite us to determine why Naomi is suffering. The text invites us to see a woman who is going through extreme suffering. It's when you go through intense suffering that you come to a turning point in life. And this is the turning point for Naomi. She believes that God will feed her again when she gets to Bethlehem. It's also a turning point for Orpah and for Ruth. So I want to consider their options and mathematical terms. You know, option one is God and his covenant plus nothing in Bethlehem. Okay, so you, you've got that on, the other, on one hand. On the other hand, you've got everything you're looking for in life minus God in Moab. And so Orpah and Ruth think about those things. They consider those equations. And Orpah comes to the conclusion that she really would like to have a life. She would like to have a husband. She would like to have children. She would like to be with family. And so she goes. She goes back home. But it's not an easy decision. And she is torn. She's weeping. They're all weeping. Reminds me of a story in the New Testament. Remember the rich young ruler? A young man came to Jesus one day. And uh, he said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And, you know, what, uh, what do the commandments say? And uh, they go through that. And the uh, rich young man says, 
Uh, all these I have observed from my youth up. What lack I yet? So I've been a believer all my life. I've kept the commandments all my life, but something is missing. What is it? Jesus says, go sell all that you have and give it to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Now Jesus, again, is laying out what the same thing Naomi's laying out. Here's the cost of discipleship. Uh, th this is the cost of following God. It is not cheap. And the rich young ruler turned away sorrowfully, you know, just like Orpah, because he was a rich man. The cost was too high. For Orpah, the cost of going with Naomi was just too high. Now, I don't want to be too hard on Orpah. I certainly understand why she would want to do what she did. But she serves as an illustration of what the, the real message is here. And uh, then we get to Ruth. And uh, Ruth um, is... She's different. And so instead of going home, she says these famous words. These are the most, this is the most famous passage in the book of Ruth. Entreat me not to leave thee, nor to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go. Where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, and thy God, my God. Where thou diest, I will die. And there will I be buried, the Lord do so to me, and more also, if I ought, if ought but death part thee and me. And sometimes we hear these words at, the, uh, at, at a wedding ceremony. The words have nothing to do with marriage. It's not, you know, the, the, uh, the bride saying something to the groom or the groom saying something to the bride. Uh, th this is uh, uh, two widows. One is a daughter-in-law, one is the mother-in-law. But the words are really not limited to an expression of love and loyalty to Naomi. She is saying something that really needs to sink in here. Here's what she's saying is, I want that first equation. I want God and whatever comes with that or whatever doesn't come with that, I want God. I'll pay the price. See, in making this confession, Ruth is using covenant language. She is pledging her commitment not to Naomi, but to Naomi's God. It is the Lord that she is following. Sign me up, she's saying. You know, Ruth believes that she's better off in Bethlehem with God and nothing else than she would be in Moab with whatever might be there, but without God. Your people are my people. Your God is my God. To be connected to one is to be connected to the other. Let's wrap it up here by asking this question. We looked at the turning points uh, for Naomi and for Orpah and Ruth. Those were significant turning points. But are you at a turning point in life? Has the Spirit of God been working on you or in you through the discipleship efforts of other people or through His Word or people that you uh, associate with uh, 
have the circumstances of life got your attention to make you think, maybe I need to rethink the way I live and who really is in control of my life? Are you at a turning point? God uses a, a lot of stuff in our lives to bring us to a, to a, a, a turning point. And, uh, you know, honestly, I, I know that there are, are, are some, when, when uh, you think about the cost of discipleship, and say, oh, man, I, I'm really attracted to Jesus, but it just seems so costly to follow after him. I think maybe I'll take the safe route. Maybe I could follow him at a distance, uh, maybe close enough to get a get a get out of hell free card or something like that, but, but not so close that I have to actually pick up my cross and follow him. Well, if you are thinking you'll take the safe option, let me warn you that safety is a mirage. The only safe place to be is in the hands of a sovereign God. And when you believe in the sovereignty of God that he loves to work mightily in the lives who trust in him, then you have a freedom and a joy that cannot be shaken by hard times. So I want to conclude now, I really am going to conclude now with uh, just a, a couple of theological observations. You know what theological observations are in common terms? Life application. are tightly related. See, our daily decisions are real decisions, but God is still at work in them, okay? In Ruth, we see the providence or the sovereignty of God. We also see the responsibility of the human being to make a decision, don't we? And it's not that it's one or the other, it's, it's both and. But whatever you decide to do has consequences, you know, both for good or for bad. But the book of Ruth tells us that as you make real decisions, there is someone who is at work. Things don't just randomly happen. There is a God who directs the outcomes of all of the, of the decisions and the e events in our lives. And so... Uh, Naomi, who had left Bethlehem some 10 years ago, returns an empty, embittered old woman. That word bittered, by the way, for carrying bitterness with you. God's working on you to get that out. Naomi shows up with this Moabite woman, someone who would be regarded as a nobody at best, but here's, here's something I hope is going to open your eyes to see. Wow. Ruth, who is a Moabite, meaning that she is someone who is outside the covenant. She is not a Hebrew. She is not one of the chosen people. She's on the outside. And God had said of those people, you are not to intermarry with these people. You're not to have uh, dealings with these people. Uh, not for any other reason but the fact that they were devoted to following other gods. But here's a woman from that nation, you know, a Gentile, a non-Jew, someone who is outside the covenant, who makes 
a decision under the uh, sovereign supervision of Almighty God. She makes the decision to follow God, which changes the course of history forever. For from her came forth the ancestors of David and eventually of the Redeemer, the one who would redeem his people. What practical application does that have? Okay. We're just regular people who live in a small town. Some would say our lives are not that significant. How do you know that? How do you know what lives you might touch in generations that are to come after you as a result of deciding to do what Ruth did under the supervision of a sovereign God? It's amazing to see God at work. And when you're going through hard times, it's good to remember that the hand of God is at work even when you can't see it. Let's pray together. Lord, there's so much uh, here in this first chapter of Ruth that we have uh, looked at and have rejoiced over. Uh, we do pray for the, uh, the, the impact of what you did uh, in this woman's life uh, to be felt uh, even today. And for all of us who are followers of you, um, we can trace that relationship with you uh, back to this point uh, where Ruth said that she wanted to embrace uh, Naomi's God as her own and that you honored her by having her being part of the lineage of your son uh, when he came. Help us, Lord, to see uh, that you are at work through ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Through Christ we pray. Amen.